Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. Some high drama played out this week in Washington with two people laying claim to the leadership of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It was an unusual situation where a Trump appointee clashed in court with a pick made by the outgoing chief from the Obama administration. A little later in the show, our senior banking reporter, Evan Weinberger, will walk us through the saga. And at the end of the show, you'll want to stick around to hear the story of a Fifth Circuit judicial pick who may be a literal lifesaver. As always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. So, what do you want to talk about? I think we I think we we have to talk about DMX. I always want to talk about yeah, DMX. Yeah, a little, little, little update here. He's, Late breaking. Yeah, yeah. He's been on the show before. X, go and give it to you. A guilty plea. Wow. Oh. He's yeah. like, I've I had enough. I didn't expect that, really. He pleaded guilty to one count of tax evasion uh, like a couple hours ago. All right. Um, so I don't know why I said good. I don't really a, care that much. <laughs> yeah, I don't really care one way or the other. Good but. for you for telling us, I meant. To, yeah, uh, it's nice to have an update, though. Circle That's the square true. on that. But he, there were like 14 counts or something yeah, in the, the yeah. original thing. So it's, it's... Did he do any more like raps on the steps of a courthouse? Because no, that's all I'm really looking for. I think once you plead guilty, it's it's harder to go mm, rap trickier. on the Especially if it seems sure. like he was able to... I mean, how much he got a, got yeah. away with. But he is... He, 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 I mean, he's you know. got a rough ride ahead of him, so it's... <laughs> it's yeah. Uh, I did see the thing you tweeted out about the... They're, they're, they're diving pretty deep into the... Uh, in, into the oeuvre on, on references now. Oh, yeah, now. yeah, yeah. What was it? I, I well, the U.S. attorney, d- d- I forget what it was. It was like, it was... It, right or wrong? It was right or wrong. That's it. Yeah. Off yeah. the better off... De- I, not better off... De- so wait, right or wrong? Like, I'm not even sure I would recognize that as a DMX song. No, like, I, that's not I even didn't a good, immediately, like, but it was so sort of, uh, uh, like, badly used it's on that the you sound, knew it was a pun in yeah, some capacity. It's on gotcha, the soundtrack to a gotcha. movie he was in that's escaping me right now, and I'm pissed off about it. But. Romeo uh, Must Die? No, no, no. <laughs> and it wasn't Half Past Dead, either. It's oh, please list more DMX movies, guys. Uh, oh, Jay, challenge He's not in Juice. That's, that's Tupac. I don't know. Uh, we can All yeah, right, well, let's move on to some actual other big news we want to talk about. I know, Bill, you have one you want to kick us off with. Yeah, we had uh, some... Breaking news on Tuesday, it was the billion-dollar IP trial filed by Google against Uber over self-driving car technology was delayed, uh, postponed, after a dramatic revelation that Uber had not disclosed a letter from a former employee that contained bombshell allegations. Now, we did talk about this trial a couple episodes ago, but it's always good to do a do a light reset. What's at issue here? I know we're talking about self-driving car technology. But... Yeah, I mean, we've talked about Uber a lot on the show. Yeah. Uh, so amid all its other legal woes, uh, <laughs> Uber is accused of stealing really, really valuable trade secrets from Waymo, which is um, the self-driving car project owned by Google's parent company, Alphabet. Uh, In a lawsuit filed earlier this year, Waymo claimed that Uber poached this star former engineer, Mm -hmm. um, knowing that he had taken thousands of these confidential files with him that contained all sorts of information about this really sensitive technology. It's, you know, everyone is watching this case because not only is it this massive, really valuable case, but it's, it's these two arguably most advanced projects of what should be the next big technology. I mean, self-driving cars, everyone says in 25 years, it's going to be, that's going to be the car. So yeah, I always want to talk about this on the podcast. We've talked about the case before we've talked about, you know, the technology right. and like regulating it. Legislation and all that. And stuff so, like that yeah. um, but you also said the word bombshell. So yeah. that always, my ears perk up for that. Right. What was the bombshell that happened? So we've been litigating for a year and it's been really contentious, all sorts of back and forth with discovery. The judge recommended a criminal probe at one point. So the trial was finally set to go, December 4th. Okay. Jury selection was going to happen this week. The judge overseeing the case gets a note from the Department of Justice, out of the blue, unprompted, not requested by either party or by him, saying that there's this letter 
that Uber hasn't disclosed in discovery as of yet that we know about we being the prosecutors that okay. we know about that Uber hasn't disclosed. Well, this to. is already crazy. What was in the letter? So the letter had been sent to Uber six months ago by a former employee after he had been fired. Um, and it contained damning allegations. It was sent by his attorney to Uber, um, essentially, you know, sort of lightly threatening a lawsuit saying that Uber had operated this special team to spy on competitors to sort of explicitly to steal their secrets, um, that it had used all sorts of like technological gimmickry, uh, like different servers to avoid things being discovered, uh, messaging apps that deleted the messages afterwards. So all sorts of like really shady behavior. Huge smoking gun for this trial. Well, it's- it's, Potentially. It's very relevant. Yeah. I don't want to say smoking gun. It was very relevant- According to what what Waymo sure. and the judge and the prosecutors all say, yeah. So they had never disclosed this during discovery. They had never given it over to Waymo's attorneys. It gets to the judge. The judge tells the parties about it. Waymo immediately throws their hands up and like, mm. what the hell happened here? That what, like we should have had this delay the trial, postpone it. So the judge says like, we're going to get to the bottom of this right now. The day it was the day before jury discovery was supposed to happen. This is like a or, movie. Sorry, jury selection was jury supposed selection. to happen. Yeah, and. He hauls in everybody, including the guy who wrote the letter. Okay. And they had, I mean, how did, how did that go? <laughs> so we get into court on Tuesday and it's bananas. So, I mean, people are in court. This is uh, California federal court. So they allow for uh, people to use phones in there, which we know is harder in, in New York federal court. Yeah. yeah. So people were live tweeting everything that was yeah, going on Yeah, there were some wild threads this going on. This seems like the perfect thing to live tweet. Right. It's just so juicy. And it was Judge William Alsup, who is this very well-known sort of tech IP San Francisco federal judge. Like he, he knows how to code. He yes. really understands this yes. stuff. So he said that he had never seen anything like this in his 18 years on the bench. Um, he almost immediately when the trial, because we were going to do a story on the delay and on the hearing, immediately we get a dispatch from our reporter in the courthouse saying the trial has been delayed. Like, run with that story. Yeah. So immediately he pushes the trial to February saying that, like, I, I can't go forward now that you didn't tell anyone about this letter. Um, and he was going to so- use the the time that had been allotted for the trial for these evidentiary hearings. So I'm sure Alsop was really mad at this point. What did he have to say about it? Yeah, he did not mince words. Uh, the power quote that that was in the story was, quote, I can no longer trust the words of the lawyers for Uber in this case. If even half of what is in this letter is true, it would have been an injustice for Waymo to go to trial. Wow. Nice. Yeah. So <laughs> it's a big deal. So um, the other big thing on Tuesday was they put this former Uber employee, Rick Jacobs, uh, up on the stand and they grilled him. And uh, the this was, you know, the letter had been, word of the letter had been filed in court, mm-hmm. but it had been redacted. So these revelations that I mentioned before about these crazy things that Uber is accused of doing, they were being revealed in real time. In open court. In open court. Yeah. And everyone was live tweeting these. It was wild. Okay. So... Um, what happened on Wednesday? I know it got even. Well, but nutty. so to, yeah. to be just to put a button on Tuesday, uh, Jacobs's whole defense was that I didn't mean these things. And that he was just um, exaggerating. That, was, that, <laughs> it, that it was like a plaintiff's lawyer and they, JK and LOL. he was seeking a settlement and yada, yada, yada. Right. Um, that's like the the like sort of the message that came out of it. OK. Um, so Wednesday rolls around yeah. and we're going to do a whole nother day of this. Uh <laughs> The highlight of Wednesday was that they put Uber's deputy general counsel on the stand. And again, Sounds good. Alsup did not mince any words here. So the explanation from Uber for why this wasn't disclosed to Waymo was that they were doing this internal investigation and they didn't want to compromise the, the, that investigation. They also 
just flatly dispute everything and say, it, it, you know, that that it, it was this attempted extortion and that the guy was trying to, you know, was trying to extort us. So they turned the letter over to prosecutors. That's how it got back to the court case, saying they wanted to, you know, deflate this this uh, this extortion scheme that was happening against them. Alsip did not seem particularly swayed by no. Uber's defense. I, I bet he had more to say about that. So he pointed to the fa- he said, yeah, sure, you think this letter was BS, and that's why you don't, you know, that's why, yada, yada, yada. He brought up the fact that Jacobs and his attorney both received settlements from Uber. Jacobs for uh, $4.5 million and his attorney for $3 million. So not an insignificant amount of money. Uh, and there was another just amazing quote from the judge quote, here's the way it looks. You said it was a fantastic BS letter, no merit. And you paid $4.5 million to an ordinary mortal like me. And to the jury, (laughs) that's a lot of money. You don't pay that kind of money for BS on the surface. It looks like you covered this up and refused to turn it over to the lawyers. He is mad. So yeah, (laughs) yeah. so it's just another wrinkle in what has already been a incredibly stakesy, very crazy case. Um, we will go forward. It's set now for a trial in February. Who knows? Really? Who knows? Because <laughs> right. it's already been postponed <laughs> right. once before this back in October. So we will see. That's uh, crazy. Yeah. Th- thanks for bringing that one, Bill. Yep. So, Alex, I know you want to talk about some high court action, which I always love. Yeah, I thought it would be good to preview an exciting case that's going to be argued on Monday uh, when the nation's degenerate gamblers and uh, (laughs) the sports industry observers uh, will be looking to the high court because they are going to hear arguments in a case that could uh, potentially undo the federal ban on sports gambling uh, across the nation. I watch sports. Yeah. And a few of my friends are degenerate gamblers. So uh, (laughs) are you telling me that, that, that I could start gambling too? Well, and I mean, if your friends are degenerate gamblers, it's Good chance that they're already doing that, and we'll talk about that in a second. But what's going on here is that um, in uh, in 2014, the state of New Jersey passed a law that repealed basically all of its existing restrictions on sports gambling. And they did that basically in open defiance of a federal law from 1992 that is known as the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, the PASPA. And that law basically makes it illegal for states to authorize most forms of sports betting. Mm -hmm. Now, when that law was passed, some states got waived in if they had, you know, a good structure of sports betting in place. So, like, that's how Vegas exists. Right. Vegas, uh, Nevada, and a a few other states have it. But for the most part, it, it said, states, no sports betting for you. You can't do it. And basically... New Jersey has been fighting that tooth and nail for several years now because they have a lot of racetracks and a lot of casinos that are struggling. Sure. And th- Atlantic City. A lot of money comes in on sports betting and it could provide, you know, a certain economic lift. And what's happened now is the legal fight has proceeded all the way to the high court. Um, basically, they're challenging that PASPA, uh, again, the federal law that, that has the sports betting ban, is unconstitutional. So... How does the Constitution view sports betting? Yeah, if I remember correctly, there's no uh, there's no sports gambling clause. I mean, Ben Franklin loved the ponies. Everyone knows that. <laughs> uh, but uh, for the most, I mean, they didn't say anything specifically, as always happens in constitutional cases. But uh, at issue here is the Tenth Amendment, and the Tenth Amendment has to do with states' rights. And the Supreme Court has generally interpreted the the Tenth Amendment to say that the federal government is not allowed to the, the, the legal term of art is commandeer states to enforce federal laws. Mm-hmm. It can't, 
you know, command states to take certain actions. Sure. And New Jersey is arguing that PASPA does exactly that. And it's telling the justices, hey, you got to get this law off the books so you can free up us and perhaps other states to sort of tend to our own houses on the issue of sports gambling, set up our own industries, regulate them, stuff like that. So who's on the other side? I mean, who's who's arguing against that position for New Jersey? In this particular case, it happens to be the NCAA, the the, the College uh, Athletic Association. Mm-hmm. But because uh, that's just sort of what became ripe in the courts. But for all intents and purposes, they are standing as a proxy for basically every major sports league in North America. Right. All of which, you know, hate gambling for the reasons that we can all guess. You know, it can lead... It, well, they would argue it can lead to corruption in the sport and, you know, basically collapse the whole industry if it's not handled properly. The NCAA and the leagues basically say that this constitutional argument it doesn't amount to much. They say that PASPA doesn't actually impose a burden on the states. It only says that the states aren't allowed. It, it doesn't command them to do something. Right. It just bars them from taking it in action. It's just a kind of a subtle thing. But you see the difference there. Um, and so they would say it's no different from, you know, scores of other federal laws and directives that effectively ban states from passing laws that conflict with federal policy. Sure. Stuff like that happens all the time. And so it's this interesting push and pull between what what New Jersey is actually trying to do by repeal. They're trying to repeal their own restrictions on sports betting and set up their own things. And the government is saying, no, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. The 10th Amendment stuff gets a little murky there. Now, for and that seems pretty straightforward, but and for what it's worth, the leagues and the NCAA have prevailed at just about every stage of the litigation here. They won at federal court. They won in the Third Circuit. They got uh, a pretty surprise on banc rehearing at the Third Circuit, and they won there again. A lot of people thought that this case wouldn't even be taken up because the case law was so overwhelming. Um, but clearly the justices, uh, at least a good bulk of the justices, think that it's ripe for uh, for examination here. So let's talk a little bit about what exactly is on the line here. I mean, sports betting is a big industry. Yeah. What you'll hear on Monday is a lot of, as I've already talked about, a lot of states' rights arguments. And I don't think, I don't think New Jersey is going to secede from the union because Frankie Sausages you know, can't bet the under on uh, Nets Wizards. I don't know. New Jersey hey, does some interesting I'm things. That mean stuff about my uncle. I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there is, as you said, Amber, there is a lot on the line here. Uh, the court. With constitutional stuff, you know, we never know how broad or narrow that they'll rule. They could go a number of ways. But the point here is that, as I referenced up top, sports betting is not going away. And the courts either have to clarify how the Constitution interacts with this federal sports gambling ban, Mm -hmm. or state legislatures or Congress has to step in and figure something out. According to some industry estimates, it's about $60 billion were spent last year, uh, just on offshore books, which wow. is how most people uh, do big-time sports betting. And some estimates have it at as high as about $150 billion of illegal betting going on. Wow. So there's a lot of money moving back and forth, and the law can tend to be a little sluggish in keeping up with stuff like this. And if you're interested in stuff like that, whether you're a lawyer or you just, uh, I don't know, can't get enough of betting on uh, you know, the NCAA tournament or other things like that, uh, you might want to tune in on Monday because there will be some interesting uh, arguments to see. Thanks for setting us up to know what's going on, Alex. Thank you. Our main story this week is the latest chaos in D.C. 
this time over dueling claims to the throne of a federal agency called the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. President Trump appointed his own pick to run the agency last week, but the outgoing chief from the Obama administration says Congress gave him the right to pick his successor for the independent watchdog. That disagreement led to a surreal week, complete with competing agency bosses, emergency litigation, and an infamous bag of donuts. Here to discuss it all is senior banking reporter Evan Weinberger. Thanks for being with us, Evan. Thanks for having me. So just to give people a sense of what we're talking about here, can you just tell us exactly what CFPB is? Sure. The CFPB was created after the financial crisis. It was the brainchild of Democrats in Congress who said that the banking regulators did not do enough to prevent mortgage fraud and foreclosures and Mm -hmm. people getting scammed by their banks and credit card companies. Uh, It's in the law. It's created. And it's been... uh, punching bag for Republicans ever since, basically. So, Evan, there I was on Friday at my in-law's house having a leftover turkey sandwich, probably two or three beers in, kind Mm -hmm. of lazily looking at the internet. And then I noticed you filing all these stories and and financial journalists everywhere filing all these stories about this chaos at the CFPB. So, like you said, it's been kind of a lightning rod for controversy for a long time. It seems to have come to a head on Friday. Tell us what happened. Okay. So Richard Cordray, who was the director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, was probably the most hated man in Washington <laughs> by banks, by Republicans, everybody. There's no small distinction these days. No, but, no, it, yeah. was a, it, was a, it was a tough <laughs> road, but he was the most hated person in Washington. Um, there had been some debate about whether President Trump was able to fire him. There's actually a case in the D.C. Circuit about that right now. Uh-huh. But anyway... Early in November, he finally put out a statement that he was going to resign his post, which didn't officially end until next year, uh, and presumably run for governor of Ohio, his home state. He didn't say when he was going to leave, just by the end of November. Then on Friday, last Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, when I was out playing with my kid in the park, (laughs) he decided it was time to leave. He then promoted his chief of staff to be the deputy director. About 15 minutes later, he said he's out. And then from there, she would be the acting director. A few hours later, President Trump nominated his own person, who is also the director of the Office of Management Budget, Mick Mulvaney, who in the past has said that he wanted to uh, destroy the agency. Okay. So there you go. So the, the, the woman that Cordray put in place, her name's... Uh, Leandra Le- English. Leandra English. So we have Leandra English and Mick Mulvaney now sort of both with a claim to it. Right. So I think for someone who hasn't been following this closely... The first thought is, well, doesn't the president have the right to appoint the head of, of a federal agency? So walk us through why, uh, what the claim for, for English to, to stay on as the director is. Sure. In Dodd-Frank, there is a provision in there that says that the director has the, the deputy director of the CFPB served as the acting director when the permanent Senate confirmed director is not in place for absence or unavailability. Uh, supporters of English and English herself, who is suing as a private citizen, she's not suing, you know, the CFPB is not backing her on this, mm-hmm. uh, argue that that means that she is the proper acting director. So I have to imagine that Mulvaney and the administration sees things differently. What's their position for why Mulvaney can take over? There is a separate competing 1998 statute uh, governing when acting directors can be appointed. Mm-hmm. They argue that that, uh, actually, the Justice Department, the Office of Legal Counsel, says that the two statutes work together, but the president gets final say. Mm-hmm. And the CFPB's general counsel uh, agrees with them. Huh. 
So then later in the weekend, this all landed in court. Can you tell us about that? Right. On Sunday night, uh, Leandra English filed a lawsuit uh, claiming that she was the rightful acting director of the CFPB. Uh, then it went to court on Sunday. It went to court on Sunday night, Monday morning. Yeah, I was going to say, what did that? I bet that made for an interesting Monday morning at the office. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Amber mentioned donuts. Yeah, this is where the donuts come in. So Monday morning, Mick Mulvaney and his staff show up at the CFPB with a bag of Dunkin' Donuts. It's a <laughs> small bag. It's very clearly not for the uh, around a thousand or so CFPB employees. <laughs> Mickey right bag there. of donuts, they call right. them. Mickey bag of donuts. <laughs> nice. Um, and you. it's unclear whether there is actually a box of Joe to go with that. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're on the beat. I mean, yeah. I was out a few days uh, <laughs> following the holiday, and I just assumed that the people filling in for me brought you guys all donuts and tried to take over my position here. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually did it. I, I attempted a benevolent oh, uh, coup. Yeah, yeah, it was bloodless, right. uh, as you know, given that you're here. Right. Um, I, I came but... back to defend my throne. <laughs> well, you have to. There, there's context here because yeah. Nick Mulvaney, on his in his first day, he had a press conference and he had to say, "I am not here to burn the building down." Huh. Flat out. So but he's so, walking into a hostile environment. Yeah. So the did English show up herself? English reportedly showed up at least for a little while, mm-hmm. then went over to Capitol Hill to meet with Senate Democrats. But they're both at least nominally laying claim to... It's just such a bizarre situation. Though. Yeah. I mean, yeah. this is like when Reagan gets shot, except there's two Al Hags. Like, they're like, <laughs> I'm in charge. I, I'm in charge. <laughs> I've seen it compared to the Avignon Papacy. Uh, <laughs> wow. I mean, that, I, that is, is obscure. We might have to stop. I mean, I might have I, to go read before I ask you the next I question. I personally went more with Highlander. There can only be one. Uh, good point. Okay. Get head chopped off. So, what, so they both issued... They sent these staff-wide emails, right? And there yep. was stuff on Twitter, too, right? There was, st- there was fight over who had the Mulvaney created his own Twitter account for the <laughs> CFPB director. Uh, somebody created apparently a fake Twitter account for Leander English. That's, that's about par for the course yeah. these days. Yeah, yeah rogue it CFPB was really weird. Director. Okay. Nobody was 100% sure, but now we're pretty confident <laughs> that it was a fake one. Well, bringing us around to some sort of resolution, um, there was a lawsuit going on, right. and this has moved pretty rapidly. We got a decision on Tuesday, right? Can you break we that down for us? We got a decision on Tuesday. Um, English had asked for a temporary restraining order on the case to say that Mick Mulvaney cannot be there. Mulvaney himself on Monday said, the court rules for English. I will not show up the next Mm -hmm. day. Okay. Uh, The court did not rule for English on Tuesday night and was very skeptical of her arguments about uh, Dodd-Frank superseding the other law. Uh, So technically now we are in a situation where we have two acting CFPB directors, but Everyone kind of looks at it and says, Mulvaney's got the upper hand here. He's got the support of the president. He's got the support of the general counsel at the CFPB. He's sent out a staff-wide email saying, ignore right. anything English says. Stand down. He's done it twice. <laughs> they appear to be doing it. Folks I've spoken to around the CFPB are just confused. They don't know what to so do. So let's rewind a little bit. What did the judge say about the claims that English brought and to, that, that made him side with Mulvaney? That... People who wrote Dodd-Frank say that we intended for the director to uh, appoint an acting director. Right, because it was this independent agency. It was meant to be outside. It was meant to be a watchdog. The judge who did it, uh, Judge Timothy Kelly, who's a Trump appointee, Mm -hmm. said, I don't care about congressional intent. These two statutes act together. And, you know, I've spoken to a number of legal scholars who say this is a really close question. It is not something that... Uh, that comes up very often. It's not written in the statutes very often that you would have uh, the director of a, an agency appoint a, a replacement. So where does this leave us now? We, we've said that Republicans have long 
hated this watchdog. Now we have Mulvaney with, like you said, the upper hand who will likely now be in charge. Yeah. What can we expect moving forward? There are two ways that this could go. One is that he kind of sets fire to the place, stops enforcement actions, stops all, you know, tries to repeal regulations, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. The other is that he just doesn't do anything and everything stops because it's a single director organization. So if he doesn't approve something, it doesn't happen. So mm-hmm. if you have a big enforcement action, it's not going to happen unless the director says, go for it. If you have a regulatory guidance, he has to sign off on it. So it could be destruction by neglect more right. than anything else. And lawmakers who backed English have already, ba- I mean, she will continue the lawsuit, but I mean, it sounds like even CFPB allies are kind of moving on to the political front of the fight. Is that right? Right after the TRO decision was issued, I got a whole bunch of statements from Democratic senators saying, we want a full-time replacement there. Yeah. Okay. Know, they, they've kind of, they see where this is heading. Well, we will have to wait and see, but we'll have you back when we have more information about how CFPB fares. I'll be happy to be here. Thanks, Evan. Thank you. We like to end our show with something offbeat, and for once, we finally have an uplifting story to talk about. Yeah, you know, we've been doing this show for a few months now, and I think it's been mostly successful. Uh, One note that we do get a lot, both internally and I've heard it from some listeners, is that, you know, at the end... The offbeats, you guys, you guys skew a little negative, you know. Yeah, you we do. Fo- we talk about people like screwing up. Reality skews, skews a little negative. Well, yeah, there you go. lawyers and judges doing bad things. I mean, we know why that's generally more interesting and newsworthy, but we're going to depart from that formula today because I have a story about Texas Supreme Court Justice Don Willett, uh, who is already somewhat famous. He, Bit of a Twitter celeb. Yeah, he's informally known as the Tweeter Laureate of Texas. Uh, he's also been nominated to serve on the Fifth Circuit by President Trump. And he's in the news this week for something uh, completely unrelated to any of that because he apparently saved someone's life at a Chick-fil-A in Austin, <laughs> Texas on Which Tuesday. Which is crazy. And I was actually just uh, at a Chick-fil-A yesterday. I was on a long drive and stopped at a Chick-fil-A. I don't think I would have saved anyone there. <laughs> well, that's... I mean, not because I'm a bad person, but it just seems like the kind of thing where I... you'd freak out or freeze or whatever. So we're what not, happened? Yeah. We're not here to litigate your Samaritan it's, tendencies. Which are apparently terrible. Um, yeah. But anyway, he was there uh, enjoying some lunch and a man started choking. This is all reported in various uh, local Texas media. I'm reading now from the San Antonio Express News. Um, and he gave a statement basically saying that this guy started choking uh, a different diner uh, jumped up and started to give the guy the Heimlich maneuver, gave about two or three pumps. Nothing came out. So Judge Willett uh, s- sprung into action. Willett said he had erred in his uh, in his approach to the Heimlich. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, by his own statement uh, given to, again, multiple outlets, he said, I was hunched over my MacBook, munching on some Chick-fil-A chicken strips while discussing errands with my wife on my cell. Suddenly, a nearby customer rushed to the booth in front of me and started performing the Heimlich maneuver on a dad who was dining with his young daughter. I hung up on my wife, first time in 21 years. That's my favorite (laughs) detail, by the way. And jumped up. (laughs) He said, uh, I gave a quick thrust or two, dislodging the nugget and clearing the airway. So it it was a nugget. Apparently, I don't know if he was just being. They're pretty chokeable. I don't know. Have you? So you grew up in Chicago. Did you ever? Did you ever go to a Chick Fil A? Uh, there, we we got them after I graduated from college. I have I have been to some. The nuggets though, are yeah. pretty chokeable. 
They're like they're 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 lodgeable. Yeah, they're like square yeah. or something, right? Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. Um, but uh, yeah, I successfully had nuggets just yesterday, and I'm here recording the podcast. So that's good, and we're and we're thankful for that. Anyway, to put a coda on this, uh, another quick quote from the from the judge, uh, articulate as he always is. I hugged my wife and three wee willets a little tighter when I got home, and we prayed for this man's dear family, especially his sweet daughter, who was just frozen in fear watching this all unfold. Life is precious and so fragile. Wow. Yeah. Uh, now, this is, all, this is all in local media. It didn't get picked up uh, on any national sites that I saw. I did reach out to Chick-fil-A for comment just to see if they could confirm and if they wanted to make a statement. Uh, didn't hear back by recording time. And you can see why. Like, I mean, I'm sure they would like to say something nice about the judge, but, sure. I, but they also don't want to draw attention to, as to Bill says, their, their, their possibly chokeable nuggets. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, anyway, that's what I got for you this week. That seems like a pretty good place to stop. Thanks, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks, guys. We have lots of people to thank for this week's show, including our producers Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. We'd also like to thank our guests this week, Evan Weinberger, and contributing reporters Zach Zagger, Brian Koenig, and Kara Bales. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you're interested in any of the stories we've talked about this week, check us out on law360.com slash podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks, and join us again next week.